but it, I kind of wanted to do that actually. Uh, that's, that's good to hear you laugh. It seems like it's a dull and dreary morning. So uh, if I was in grade three, I would ask you to stand and we'd do some jumping jacks, but you're not three or in grade three. So I will just attempt to do this by, uh, by preaching to you about a very important subject this morning. And hopefully you can uh, be able to be engaged uh, the reality is the subject of the sovereignty of God is not a great subject. And I'll just introduce myself and remind you all that those who know me, my name is Trev. I am also one of the elders here who happens to be the regular preacher. And uh, it's my great delight and in some ways because of the topic this morning, my great terror to preach this this morning. It's not an easy issue, um, this idea of God's sovereignty. Some of you are like automatically tuned out or frustrated. And we have this, I say, love-hate relationship. First of all, our whole culture hates authority. We just typically don't love this idea of authority. We don't love to talk about it. Um, that's what sovereignty means. Supreme power or authority. We don't refer to our bosses as sovereigns who have absolute power. We don't refer to them as we may be, may be our employer, but they don't own us. They don't rule us. They don't have authority over us. We don't like those terms typically in our culture. And yet at the same time, most of us have struggled in our prayer life and we desperately want a God who's in supreme authority. We want a God who can do something about our prayers, right? It's weird this way. We have this love-hate relationship with, we hate the fact that God is in control when he does things that we don't like, but we love the idea of God being in control when we have some prayer requests or some things that we need. It's an amazing dilemma and in our whole culture. And so I don't know what your approach is to the authority and the sovereignty of God. Some people immediately take this kind of doctrine and they smash it against things like um, our choice to choose to believe in God. And, and they, they pit these things against one another and say, well, see, you can't have the authority. Uh, you can't have God as an authority if you have, you know, uh, a choice to believe. And, and they say, see, one cancels out the other. I'm not even going to discuss that this morning. Not because it's not valuable, but because, A, you don't have time to hear all of the sides of this. And B, I don't think that really matters anyways, because even as I talked about this tension, I could feel you and watch you. You're on one side of that or the other. You're either fighting God's authority or you want God's authority. And here's what I'm trying to do this morning is give us an idea of why this, why we would want a God who is in supreme authority. Because I honestly think as I thought through this and as I worked through the text this morning, if we were to construct a good God, we would construct a God of supreme authority, actually. We wouldn't construct a God that was, had to bend to our ideals. That kind of God's not worthwhile at all. In fact, most of us are frustrated because we've spent most of our lives worshiping a God that we can't control. And they can't do anything that is helpless when we really need them. We worship money. We long for money. And then when we don't have it, we don't know what to do. We worship a relationship and then the tension of that relationship is torn from us. And, and we, want, we suddenly want either more control or we want God to do something about our situation. And so if you've ever prayed a prayer, dear God, can you do something about this? 
whether you think it or not, you are calling out to a God who you think could actually do something about it. And so many of us have not great experiences or we have experiences with people in authority or maybe fathers or mothers. My experience, my dad was here, mom and dad were here about three weeks ago and I have a great relationship with my dad and I have appreciated him more, I think, in his older age than I did when I was younger, which is not surprising. But I remember having this concept of my dad who is a very generous, in, in, in every way, he is more generous than he's ever been to me. But I remember thinking distinctly when he was much, he was much younger, he's, not, he's always going to be young, it seems, the way he looks. But when I was younger, and I would ask him for things, and he would give me this response, I'd love to do something about this, but I can't. Any of you had that experience? Uh, Trev, I would love for you to play baseball, but I'm a farmer and I just can't afford this time off during this season. I'm really sorry. And so I grew up with this concept of a God who was in control but didn't care enough or couldn't do anything about it. And so I have my own baggage too, friends, about this whole issue. And I think there was a season in my life where I just not began to be comfortable with the idea of God in supreme authority, but comfortable with the fact that I was uncomfortable with God in supreme authority. And the fact that I would fight this. And even on the way here, I was walking. It's kind of a highlight into my life. Not a good highlight. I'm walking and I'm like, Jesus, help me preach this so that people can understand that you're in supreme authority over all things because I think I understand this and I need other people in my church family to understand this. And then I saw a man walking with, with one arm and a bent leg and I felt pray for him and I was pray for healing and I went, no. And I thought immediately, because I don't really believe that my supreme authority God could heal. And it was like, that was a 10 second window into my life where I'm saying God, I think you're in supreme authority, but you can't do anything about that, clearly. And so I understand this, this tension. And my hope is not to give you information this morning. My hope is that our hearts are actually changed and warmed to this idea that we begin to seek and not just appreciate, but we have a sense of awe that the God of supreme authority decided to come to us. That when God says, I put the fullness of myself inside of Jesus Christ, that it gives us this great sense of awe. That the completely and totally approachable Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our mediator, holds the fullness of God within himself. And that we just, in some ways, we, we don't walk away trying to figure out what we're supposed to do with our lives, but we just understand who God is so much better. So that when we get frustrated with God being in control, we can simply be reminded. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a song. If you turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter, well, it's actually Song chapter 135 or Song 135. It's in the middle of your Bible, basically. Um, Psalms is a, is a book of, actually, it's a book of lyrics. And this summer, we're going to go through this, um, uh, go through many different songs or psalms. And they're, they're interesting and they're different. And we don't, have the, we don't have the tunes. We have the notes that accompany this, but Essentially, this would be like going into the ancient Hebrews um, lyric book. And they would know the tunes, and they wouldn't have written them down because they would have passed, been passed on to your children. You notice how sometimes songs have this unique way of driving home some truth or some power into our lives. Isn't that an amazing thing about the combination of lyrics and music together? 
how they have a way of pressing home and helping us to remember things. Like if you recently, um, sorry if this is a spoiler alert, but recently Prince passed away. And so of course there's going to be all kinds of like, U-Tunes is going to jump all over this and you're going to see like the greatest hits of Prince soon or if you have, it's not already out. Some of you are going to go back and watch documentaries and you're going to remember songs and you're going to remember some of the lyrics even though you probably didn't realize you were a Prince fan. That's me. I was like, I don't really like Prince. I was like, well, I like that song. Well, actually, I like that song too. And it's amazing how I can go back and listen to a song that I heard 20 years ago and I can sing it. Isn't that amazing? I can't do that with the poetry that I memorized. Because I think there's something valuable for this. Now this is what's interesting is we don't have the songs, but they were meant to be sung. Because they were supposed to be remembered on a regular basis. They were supposed to be the kind when you walked away, you hummed it. And sometimes that happens to you on Sunday morning, doesn't it? Later in the afternoon, you keep humming that song. You're like, all creatures of love. In the afternoon. And you remember these things. And so we don't have the, the song. But we have the lyrics. But it's my hope when you get frustrated. And when you don't believe that God is sovereign, that Psalm 135 comes to mind and you read it again and you remember this. And so let's dive through this. I, obviously, I can't go into all of it, um, even though I, I would love to, but I want to read it out as we go. And so uh, there's so much to cover here, but the, the first little bit I'll read for you. Psalm 135, and this is what it says. Praise the Lord, Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. You might see in your translation, it's all caps there for Lord. That means Yahweh, which means I am. That was the Hebrew way. They were so reverent of the name of God that they, they called him Yahweh, which means I am. But they didn't even say all the vowels in it. They, they just said the consonants in it. And so it is spelled Y. W-H, I think, something like that. Why? Someone knows this better than I do, obviously. But they kept saying his name over I am, which means he was, he is, and he will be. It's an amazing statement about control and power. So you keep hearing that over and over again. In the courts of the house of our God, that means sovereign one. Praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel is at his, his own possession. First thing that the songwriter writes is how great is our father? How great is our father? It's like these are bookends in the whole thing. It's actually very similar to what we just sang and what would be known to many Christians as the doxology. All creatures of our God and King. It's just a statement about who God is. It's a reminder. He's worthy to be praised. It's, a, it's an amazing sort of statement to make. He simply says, like, this God is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to recognize. He's worthy to be worshipped as sovereign one. He always was. He always is. And he always will be. It's past, present, future. He's worthwhile to worship. 
This is all the servants in the house of our God. For them, the house of our God would have been the temple, which was the concentrated presence of God for the community of God's people. So it said, where, where God's people have gathered, the most important thing we can do is to praise God. See, already it's not about what we do for God. It's simply about who God is and what He deserves and what He has done and not what we do. It's a good place to start. This whole psalm is basically, um, I, I would best describe it as lyrics that are pulled from all kinds of different other songs to make the all-star song. It is. You find bits and pieces of these psalms all over. And so this is an all-star psalm that pulls together all of these different ideals. And then this is what he says, Praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing to his name for it is pleasant. You see that word good and pleasant there. We don't use that word very often, right? Maybe if we're pretending we're from the Victorian era, we just finished watching, um, you know, some of these old shows. Downton's Abbey. It's a pleasant day today. We don't use that word. But what the writer's trying to get at here is, it's good. It's pleasing. There is pleasure simply in knowing that God is good. You know, we live in a culture where if we think we understand something, we think we know it. And Jonathan Edwards, who was a great, he was a great theologian in the 18th century, and he said something I think that was very helpful and powerful for us. And he talked about this difference between knowing something in your head and knowing something in your heart. The ancient Hebrews didn't see those as different things. So when the ancient Hebrews said, you, 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 uh, I love you with all my heart. They were talking about the whole complete body. Everything in you. Your mind, your soul, your feelings, your emotions, your intellect, everything. We in our culture have separated those out, right? Our, my emotions are often not connected to what I think. And vice versa. But there, that's, a, that's a new construct philosophy-wise for us. And the writer wouldn't have understood this. And so Jonathan Edwards said that it's possible to have the opinion that God is good without knowing God as good. And that's some of our experience, I think. We know God is good. We've heard it. We'll say it. If someone said, do you believe God is good? We would say, I would swear, yes, he is good. But some of us need more than an opinion about God's goodness. We need to experience God's goodness. There's a difference, isn't it? There's a difference in my life between knowing that my wife loves me and experiencing her love. Those are not exactly the same thing. And the second one is the powerful one. The second one is the powerful one. The second one is the one that changes me. The second one is the one that, notice, that I notice. And for us, my hope is not that we know that God is good, but that we experience God as good. That we don't see this idea of him being in authority. And, and it says right there, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel is his own possession. We hate that idea, some of us. God chose people. What do you mean, they didn't have a choice? We often argue right away. I don't totally all know how that works. I just know that it says he chose Jacob and he chose Israel. He purchased them. He went after them. 
He did not wait for them to come to him. He went to them. It's hard for us to understand sometimes. We feel that we're the ones that come to God, but the way the Bible describes it is God was chasing you before you were ever chasing him. God was tracking you down and persuading you and trying to show you his glory before you were ever pursuing his glory. And we kick at that sometimes. Because we don't like this idea of authority. And we don't like this idea of God as supreme ruler, but I'm saying we don't need knowledge about this. We need to experience it as good. And it is good. And some of us aren't there yet. And there's going to be times for prayer at the end. And sometimes I think we just need to pray, Jesus, would you help me experience this as good? That the gospel is good news. Not, oh, I guess I should believe news. So what else does the writer then begin to say? I'll continue on in verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great, that the Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. All deeps. I like the way he says that. In the seas and all deeps. Talk about that sometime. Ocean deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He starts to begin to talk about the Lord. The Father has power over creation and begins to unpack this all-star statement about creation. Not going to get into all this creation versus evolution because this actually says it doesn't matter how it came into being. But it did. And who's in charge here? It's the Father. He didn't come in and try and work with creation. No, he, he orders creation. Now that's a sermon series right there. He is above all gods. He's above all deities. He's above all deities. No matter how you think of deities. No matter how many spiritual powers you can think of. He's above all things. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. I've done a lot of research about that particular phrase and here's what I think it means. The Lord does what he pleases. I don't know any other way to read that. Do you? The Lord does what he pleases. What does that mean? He does what he pleases. He wants to do it, he does it. Doesn't want to do it, doesn't do it. I mean, again, some of us, we like this is my struggle. When I read that, I was like, I don't, it either says that or it doesn't. I don't think there's another kind of translation for this that will help soften this. Now, now, this isn't meant, by the way, to crush people. This is meant to encourage people, which is the other thing I might even say about this doctrine. Is that some of us have heard this kind of doctrine in the wrong situation. Ever have that? Where it's just like, this is terrible timing. You are right, it's the wrong time. Right? He does what he pleases. He makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. Brings forth the wind from his storehouses as if God had a big warehouse with wind and he decided how much he would let out and when. 
I mean, this is, in my opinion, this is just a bold-faced liar. It's real. It can't be partially true. In Luke 8.22, we begin to see Jesus reveal himself to his disciples. And what happens is he's on a boat. And he's sleeping. And his disciples wonder why he can sleep when they are afraid that the crazy storm that's on the lake that they're on, and I don't know if you've ever been out on a boat or a canoe that's not big enough in a storm, it's not fun. It's pretty freaky. I don't know if you've ever stood in the ocean and tried to withstand a strong wave. Have you ever done that? You get crushed. It's kind of a cool feeling, actually. You're like, oh, I, I can take this wave. Boom, and your head hits the sand underneath, and you're kind of, your ears are ringing, and you're like, wow, that's really powerful. I can't imagine a whole ocean or a tidal wave or a white squall or whatever it is. It just, there's no, this, even insurance companies call it an act of God. He controls that. And so Jesus is laying in the boat and they're like, Jesus, hello. If you're really human, you'd be terrified. And what does he do? He stands up and he says, be still. He doesn't hold out his hands. He doesn't say, hey guys, let's pray. I've got, you know, this. Let's get down on our knees. He's like, shh. And it becomes calm. And his disciples are stunned. And what do they respond by saying? Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. That's an authority thing. That's not like, hey, even the wind and the waves have figured out how to put up with God. No. They submit to the authority of Jesus. It's amazing. It's like a couple, couple of sentences in our Bible. I mean, if I was there, I would be terrified. I was like, Jesus, you're in charge from now on. Okay? Whatever you say, I'll do. It's clearly, I don't know anything else that can compete with that. He's above these powers. And there's something about this culture that the ancient Hebrews would have been in was a Canaanite culture that strongly believed that their God, Baal, you'll you'll see B-A-A-L in your Old Testament Bible, they believed he was in charge of these things. Nature, wind, rain. So he brings crops. He helps produce the crops. And so there's a story in 2 Kings 18, or 1 Kings 18, it talks about this. There's one prophet, and he faces off against 450 prophets of Baal. And this one prophet, it says, it's not gonna, God told me it's not going to rain for three years. It doesn't rain for three years. He says, okay, it's time for God to show you who he is. It's, good. it's time for rain. So he says, tell you what, let's go on top. Let's go on top of a mountain. I'll build an altar. You build an altar. We'll see who can make it rain here, okay? He says, in fact, your altar, you put a big bowl on top of your altar because everyone sacrificed in those days. I'll put a big bowl on this altar. He says, tell you what, I'll give you a head start. Why don't you dump all kinds of water on my altar so this can't be accidental? And we'll see who's the superpower here. Douse it three times. Just dump gallons and gallons of water. You try to start a fire on wet wood. Doesn't work. 
So he's like, clearly this is going to have to be an act of God. He gives them all day, 450 prophets, all day long. Go ahead, pray as long as you want, pray as hard as you want. So they do. They get mad. They get frustrated. They start cutting themselves. They start praying. Halfway, this prophet, his name was Elijah, he starts mocking them. He's like, maybe your God went to the bathroom. I mean, it's kind of hilarious, right? <laughs> well, maybe he's busy. Maybe he had a meeting. End of the day, he says, okay, my turn. And he says, dear God, sovereign of the universe, and before he can even finish, fire comes from heaven and consumes the bull, the rocks, the water, and everything around. That's what the songwriter was talking about. There is one God who is in control of everything in nature. And it's my God. It's our God. What else? I mean, I'm moving as fast as I think I can here in verse 8. It was he it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as an inheritance, as a heritage, a heritage to his people in Israel. This is the father having power over history. So he's moving on in topic. Obviously the Father has power over all things, but he's getting specific to help the people be reminded. This is a massive event in the history. This is most of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, is the old part of the Bible before we really begin to hear a clear picture of Jesus. And a lot of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant story is about these two events. The escape from slavery in Egypt and the taking of the land in Canaan. The huge chunk of the story. Well known to many people even outside the faith. He's saying God's that God who saved his people out of Egypt. For 400 years they cried out and then in one day he saved them and they commemorate it with a yearly reminder called the Passover. And then the story of God saying, I, someone stood on this piece of land over 400 years ago and I said, your descendants would take this land and I'm coming good on my promise. And the rest of that story happens in Scripture. The writer is saying, remember when God did this? That's our God. That's a God who is in authority over history. So good for us. When we're tempted and frustrated with what's happening in our world economically, in our world politically, in our world culturally, God is not surprised by anything that's happening in our culture or in history. And while it seems like at times he's not listening to us, this says he's got a plan over this and he knows how to pull the strings and he knows when to. Are we praying for God to bring revival into our country and to change our land and to bring a sense of justice back to the church where we fight for the, the orphan and the widow and the poor again 
like we're supposed to in the Scriptures, and where people just willingly love Jesus and accept Him for who He is and trust in Him. Yes, we're praying for this, and it hasn't happened the way we want it yet, but that's not because God is not in control. It's because He is in control, and He has a time and a place for this. I keep a journal, not a very good one, But one of the main reasons I keep a journal is because I am so forgetful. Anyone forgetful of the things that have happened in your life? And you're surprised, actually, if you write things down, you go back through them, you're like, wow. Actually, there was a time when I had money. That's awesome. You ever forget, like, what happened in the message last week? You understood God and God changed you and you just had an incredible moment with Jesus and by Thursday you can't remember a thing and you get discouraged and then you move your Bible and your sermon notes maybe fall out and you're like, oh yeah, God's in control. Yeah, this is why they sang it. Because it's so easy to forget God's history in our lives. And I'm shocked. I'm like, man, I can't believe, if I just read through my journal every day, it would help my faith tremendously. Because I would consistently see when I prayed, this happened. When I prayed, this happened. When I prayed, God heard me. When I was desperate, God met me. When I needed God, He sought after me. That's why we meet and gather on Sundays. We don't do it to give you something to do on Sundays. We do it because we're all the same. We forget. And next Sunday, you'll have already forgotten that God is in control and that Jesus loves you and that he died on the cross to save your sins. And you'll need to hear it again. And we'll preach it again. The Father has power over justice. This is a good word for us at this particular time in history. Verse 13 and 14, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, through all ages. That's like an eternal thing. Right, that's how I can see history all at one time. It's good, good to note. And then, not disassociated from this, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. That word vindicate doesn't mean probably much to you, but it means a ton to me. It means God pays back. It means God makes right. Now you can only make something right if you know the whole story, Right? You ever watched any of these law shows and, and, you know, you come to this conclusion based on this evidence and then you find this piece of evidence and you're like, oh, well, that changes the whole story. Now that I know that, I have a completely different approach to the whole situation. This is why it's important that God knows all things from beginning to end. He knows the whole picture, so he knows what's actually right and what's wrong. And says that God will vindicate I love that. It's so important to me because the story in Genesis 34 is a very important story about God's vindication and that's actually the story of Dinah. That's my daughter's name. My 12-year-old daughter's name. I love that story so much I asked if we could name our first girl not a very good boy's name Dinah. And Dinah's name actually means God vindicates, God pays back because I said, I need to be reminded when I say her name, because I'll say it often, 
and not always in a great context. But I need to hear this story that God will bring everything rightly. God will bring the justice that needs to happen. And when I feel like I'm a victim, I need to hear it's God who brings justice. Some of us feel terribly wronged in our lives. We've been abused sexually, emotionally, physically. Our bosses treat us poorly, taken advantage of us. The government has not treated us fairly. We've lost decisions in court. We physically had things happen to us that are not our fault. We've lost money on a house. We've lost a job. We feel a victim. We feel we deserve something more. We feel this is not right. Can somebody make this right? This is why we want a God who's in supreme authority, ultimately. Because we want a God who is so committed to justice. And not just committed to justice, but able to bring justice about. I don't know if you've ever had an experience with someone who's in a justice-type position and doesn't bring justice. It drives us crazy. Like, I got a parking ticket once, and it was the wrong ticket. It was. I had my sticker. I was valid. They gave me a ticket. It just about went nuts. I was like, I can't wait to go down to City Hall. I will tell them. I will take pictures. I will show them. I have had this. I will justify myself. You just wait. I'll make this right. That's, that's, that's a small image into us. And what would have been disappointing is to say, no, no, we're totally in the right. You, Trev, you're parked in the wrong spot. And guess what? We're in authority and you have no say over this anyway. So good luck with that. No, I want someone who says, yes, you're right. We made a mistake. This needs to be made right. Ah, oh, it feels so good. When you pray to God, don't you want a God who could actually do something? Who's not handcuffed by someone else's life or someone else's mistake or someone else's ignorance? But a God who can see the whole picture and bring things right no matter what and goes, I got this. I can see everything from beginning to end. I do. That's what I mean. If we could construct a great God, I would say we would construct this kind of God. A God who is sovereign, supreme authority over all the justice in the earth. And when I see injustice in our city and there's a lot of injustice in our world right now, this is the one thing that allows me to sleep at night. Because if the justice of the world lands on my shoulders, I don't know if I'll ever fall asleep. But if the supreme justice of the world, the supreme justice, not the one they talk about in Law and Order, the supreme justice of the world, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, He knows how to deal with it. 
And fifthly, the Father has power over other gods. It's the last thing. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. What people are worshiping is actually created by other people. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth or life or spirit. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is a lyric that reminds us that the gods that we serve can't do what our God does, what this God does. Some of you are like, well, I don't worship idols. I don't really struggle with all of this. I don't make things out of silver and gold. But an idol isn't really defined by an object. An idol is defined by anything that gets in the way between you and the supreme authority over the earth. And sometimes it is something silver and gold. And sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's something really deep and internal. It's an identity. Sometimes... It's something very good that has just gotten in the way of God. And it's replaced God. And you give allegiance and you sacrifice to that God. You say, how do you sacrifice with money? Well, you sacrifice a relationship so you get money. You sacrifice a relationship with your wife so that you can get ahead to get more money. You sacrifice a relationship with your son or your daughter so that you can have a hobby. You sac- we all sacrifice something. And this is what he said. It's fruitless. They can't speak. They can't talk. They can't hear. And every idol is like this. Every single one. No matter how personified it is. Can't see you. Can't hear you. Can't speak to you. That's not the God of the universe. Even though there's this incredible picture of how large God is, think about this for a second, and we close with this. It's Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This should, this should bring us to our knees. This is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Can you hear that same psalm language through this? Creation, history. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That's a bold, capital letters, bold Lord. That's what that is about. Next slide. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's, the, he's in charge of us. He's the leader. He's the, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If there was one 
verse, passage that you could memorize, I think that would be it. This is Jesus. All the things that we talk about here in the Father come to fruition in Jesus. All the fullness of God in Jesus. Now, does it make sense to you why Jesus is a big deal in our church? He is our church. Everything we have is from Jesus. That is not an understatement for us. And it's going to take us a long time to show us how important this is for us to get. So this morning, as we close off and as we participate in the Lord's Supper, the Sovereign's Supper, that's a translation of Lord, small capital Lord, Sovereign One. You might know it as the Eucharist. You might know it as the Last Supper. I think the Lord's Supper is a great way to say it. Because Jesus doesn't say, okay, you can't even comprehend me. You can never reach me no matter how hard you try. Guess what? I will come to you. I will seek you out. I will choose you. And it's interesting Steve Jobs, the great theologian Steve Jobs, you might know him. He was very frustrated with the fact that he was adopted because he thought that that means he was rejected by his parents. And a friend of his pulled him aside and said, don't think of it as you were rejected by your parents. Think of it as you were chosen by your adopted and wanted. I love that. Don't think of God pursuing you as infringing on you, think of it as you were wanted. How badly does Jesus want you? How much does God want a relationship with you and to show him, show you himself? He came to you. He showed himself. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you shouldn't have died. And I should have died. And that's what we participate in in this symbol. That's why this is not just a ritual for us. This is for those who believe this. And I would say this morning, I'm not just protective of this. I'm saying, if you don't believe that yet this morning, then this meal is not for you because by partaking in it, we're saying we believe in it. But some of us are struggling and we want to believe in it. And I would say, if you don't yet believe that, what's holding you back? Would you pray that you can see God as sovereign? and supreme authority? Would you pray that no matter where you are in your life, that Jesus would do what he originally did, which is come to you through his spirit and speak to you in your spirit? And that you would not just know that God exists and know that he is good, but that you would experience him? That's why it's kind of cool to have a symbol. It's an actual chance to experience. When you taste, your memory will remind you of what you're doing. And so, band, would you come and lead us as we respond to this and simply pray as we partake together.